Whether you're an aspiring music business professional or a seasoned vet, every Thursday, the Music Business Podcast brings you the trends and tactics from some of the world's most innovative minds in music. I'm artist manager and consultant, Jordan Williams. And I'm Sam Heisel, co-founder of the music marketing and content production agency, Knox. We're not teachers. We're entertainment industry professionals, drinkers, wannabe comedians, and most importantly, fans. Welcome to the show. Jordan, what's happening? How you feeling, man? I'm good, man. How you doing, Sam? I'm really good. I'm very excited to have our guest on today, Mr. Chaz Jenkins, calling in from the from London, UK. Chaz is the Chief Commercial Officer at Chartmetric. Chartmetric is an incredible and very powerful piece of software that we use regularly at Knox Media. Uh, the tagline is Music Insights Driven by Data Science, but if you peel back the curtains a bit, they've essentially built a very powerful music analytics platform that enables you to to aggregate and see meaningful data points from across different platforms, whether it's social platforms like Instagram, YouTube, or streaming platforms like Spotify. Uh, the list goes on. I think they they have an incredible set of tools that really enable you to to make more better to make better decision making and ground that in uh, in great analytics and great statistics. So I think we are able to really dive deep into that general topic. But I think even outside of what Chaz has built up and has been focused on the chart metric, he's also the he, uh, prior to chart metric, he was the VP of international marketing and universal music group. Um, he's also the founder of LSO live, the multi Grammy winning label. That was one of the first labels to make artists equal shareholders and make their entire catalog available for downloading and streaming. Outside of that, I mean, a couple of the other things that really stood out to me in this episode, but one of these things was actually how I came across Chad. On the Chartmetric blog, they have a series of articles about trigger cities, um, which is a concept that Chaz largely kind of developed and popularized. And it's really this notion of those, there's a handful of cities that are slightly off the beaten path in Latin America, Southeast Asia. But these are cities that have a very high density of DSP users and people that are likely to consume and share your music. And if you're able to really focus on these markets, there's a... It's likely that DSP algorithms may take note and you can build more traction in those more traditional markets, sometimes without having to spend as much on advertising. For example, acquiring fans in, in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, given the fact that that's a, or Sao Paulo, given the fact that's one of the uh, biggest markets in the world for Spotify. So I think that to me was fascinating and really understanding the tactical implications of this concept and how you can use it to build up a a thriving fan base across your DSPs and socials was really, really intriguing. And the, the last key point too is just one of the most important factors across DSPs and DSP algorithms and how you can optimize to win on those platforms. And everybody's always looking for the, the shortcuts or, or what 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 make what drives these algorithms. And I think he does a good job decoding it. Uh, quick spoiler alert: there, there is no shortcut, but I do think he does a, a very good job in really distilling what are some of the core and if not the most important factors that these algorithms run on? What do you think, Jordan? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was a super informative, informative episode. I mean, a lot of the stuff I hadn't even thought about before we spoke to him, you know. Um, I think one of the more interesting things is I'm a little bit of a historian myself. So just talking about what data insights look like in the 1990s and how they changed to 2020 and how you can actually leverage those insights and, and that data, you know, the vast amounts of data that we have to actually make better business decisions. And one thing I appreciate him getting into was going into the holy trinity of consumption, which is the, the platforms, which are Instagram, Spotify, and YouTube. You know, if you have a lot of, if you have a lot of traction on those three, 
you've pretty much proven to yourself and to your and to your fan base that you actually have a, a solid grounding and solid foundation. So um, he gets into that a little bit more in the episode. But yeah, I thought it was really cool, really insightful, and I'm I'm super glad we got him on. Totally agree. Totally agree. Uh, this is definitely one of my favorite episodes, and I also want to shout out. We had some of our, our patrons and our members from our Patreon group that had some incredible questions and we're grateful not only that they were great questions, but that we got to feature them in the show. So if you haven't already checked out our Patreon, just go to musicbusinesspodcast.com slash community. And you'll have an opportunity to submit questions for our guests going into the episodes and have conversation on, on other different industry trends and ways in which we can help and support each other. So if you haven't already checked that out, please do. But without any further ado, Mr. Chaz Jenkins. Chaz, good afternoon to you. Nice and early for us. How are you doing today? Very good, thank you. Very good. It's a, it's a relatively warm afternoon in the UK. That's beautiful. So I think we're very excited to, to have you on today. I've read um, uh, some articles about trigger cities, and it's been a very kind of fundamental concept for us and some of the ad campaigns we're running for certain clients, as well as just being able to leverage the, the Chartmetric platform. So um for starters, can, I know you have an incredible background of experience working in kind of concert promotions, working with at major labels, starting your own label. Can you just kind of talk about how you ended up getting involved in Chartmetric? I see them as a really cool tech company in the music space. So curious how you ended up working with them. Sure. I spent about 20 years working um, either starting record labels or working in other record labels. And, you know, in actual fact, I started my first record label um, the week Napster launched. We're talking the original illegal version of Napster. And at the time, I worked in concert promotion. And, and there's sort of like this file sharing service launched. And it seemed so great. It was disruptive. You know, obviously, it was giving music available free. And obviously, that was a bad thing. And it's felt bad news for a lot of record companies, a lot of artists, and a lot of people in the industry. But it heralded an age of disruption in music. And disruption was what the music industry really needed in the 1990s. It was very much a legacy industry. And, you know, that really spurred me on because it was obvious it was going to have to be a legal solution. The industry would have to counter Napster in some way. Um, but suddenly the market was opening up. You could start a record label so easily. You didn't need to, with digital being on the horizon, you didn't need to bother with boxes of CDs and shipping them around the world. All that logist heavyweight logistics and all the marketing, traditional forms of marketing, suddenly ceased to seem so important. And so that really inspired me to really launch a record label um, and really go for it and try and do things which you could never do in the traditional recording industry. Try and reach audiences internationally. Um, try and grow a marketplace. And, you know, for the next 20 years, I've worked my way. I've built up several independent labels, which I've founded, then went to work for Universal. And then after about um, 20 years, sort of like, I came out of Universal. And, you know, some things were sort of like bothering me. You know, one thing in particular was just that nobody seems to really understand the marketplace and nobody really seems to understand what you should be doing as a record company and, you know, what is exactly the role of a record company. Because in the old days, 
You know, it was many things. It was finance, it was logistics, it was marketing, it was international relations with other companies. A lot of that was sort of like not relevant anymore. And, you know, record companies in a sense needed sort of reinventing, but also doubling down on what they could do really well, um, which is growing a market around an artist, growing a marketplace, building audiences. And one thing which was always missing was just an awareness of that, what that marketplace was. You know, it's still so much of, it's still the case today, so much of what we do in the recording industry to market or promote artists, it's really traditional. It's based on what we used to do in the 1990s, in the 1980s, in the 1970s. You know, not every single part of this industry has evolved. And in particular, one thing which really frustrated me um, working in labels was nobody ever really knew who the audience was. Nobody ever really knew how the audience discovered artists. And, you know, in that, in a complex supply chain logistics model, like with record stores, that was natural. You know, there was, um, on one side, there was record companies producing a CD, then there was distributors, then there was retailers, then there was customers. So there was lots and lots of steps. You know, there's still lots of steps these days, but, you know, we need to get closer to customers. We need, as record companies and artists for that matter as well, we need to understand consumers much more because there's a lot more of them. You know, these, you know, in the old days, record companies used to reach 20% of the global, um, potential global marketplace because really most record companies only operated in 30 or 40 countries. Now we're reaching global audiences. Music, you know, kids in their bedroom can make a piece of music, release it online, have it available in 200 countries globally the next day. Uh, there is an awful lot to learn about audiences and the marketplace, and data is the way we do that. So in a sense, you know, I left record companies, what, six, seven years ago, really fundamentally wanting to focus on um, data. It sounds rather boring. <laughs> no, it's essential. It's super valuable. That's cool. And then, I mean, when Chartmetric, I mean, it's still a relatively nascent company, right? So, I mean, when did it start? How long has it been uh, around and how has it been developing and how has the, the kind of product and clientele evolved in the past couple of years? Sure. Um, I spent a couple of years working with a number of startups, trying to find people who were really, really good at tech development um, and engineering um, to uh, who were interested in music data. I eventually found somebody who'd already started developing Chartmetric based in, um, based in Silicon Valley and hooked up with him. And, you know, fundamentally, you know, the thing which is, the thing which is important with Chartmetric is we bring in lots and lots of data. Um, and that data is public. That data is freely available. We're not interested in people's sales data. You know, in theory, most record companies and artists already have data about their sales. What we're interested in is data about the marketplace, how those sales came about how people discovered music, how people shared music, how they found the artists, etc. 
that sort of market data is what we're interested in. And um, fundamentally with Chartmetric, we're a machine learning company. We learn how to take all of this data from social platforms, DSPs, um, web analytics, radio, etc., and basically connect it all together. Because then when you connect together that data, you can understand the trends in the marketplace, not just the big global trends, you know, what genre is growing, what genre is shrinking, but how, you know, little events, um, and I'd say, for instance, a group of fans following an artist in the Philippines, how that can influence directly what people are watching um, on YouTube in Latin America how that can grow streams for an individual track on Apple Music in the USA and on Spotify in Europe. So being able to join data together reveals a whole layer of insight, which is just completely um, invisible unless you can do that. Awesome. Can you actually name a specific example of an artist that you think leveraged data in a unique way that maybe couldn't have done so 20 years ago? Sure. I mean, to be honest, the well, this is one thing about what data is. You know, we've always used data in the industry, often without even thinking a bit about it, and without even thinking of it as data. You know, the you know examples of old school data were the charts, airplay listings from radio stations, tour schedules, you know, press cuttings. All these things were data. They weren't necessarily ones and zeros, and they weren't a big spreadsheet, um, but they were all data because they were knowledge. You know, all of this market information informed the general knowledge of people, of record company executives, and of a lot of artists, you know, understanding this data. Now, of course, there is an awful lot more data than there was in the past. Um, but, you know, fundamentally, what is really important, I think, is not necessarily leveraging the data. It's leveraging the insight which you get from that data and acting upon it. You know, using the insight you can get from a huge amount of data to change strategy, to identify how you can um, grow an audience. I mean, right now, I can think of an absolutely wonderful example, which is, I don't know how much you know how much data they've actually used, but you know in term in terms of the, their approach, they've they've used insight, and that's um, you know, there's an artist, a British artist called Biba Doobie, at the moment who's blowing up like crazy. She started out um, around about two or three years ago, um, strong social media presence, and and if you act actually look at the growth, her growth over the past two or three years, you know, it's completely and utterly the opposite of the way an artist would grow in the past. You know, you have an artist who's um, British, but with South, um, Southeast Asian heritage, and she's leveraged that and she's connected audiences um, she's um, she's got strong presence on all the correct platforms, and so it's using, it, in a sense, it's using the insight you get from data to change the way you do things to tailor an art, an artist's marketing and their music for an audience. That's awesome, and I mean, I feel like even on our end too, with some of the artists we're working with, we're constantly in chart metric 
it's great to be able to consolidate all the metrics across socials, look at similar artists. We're using the similar artist feature sometimes to identify like influencer partnerships we want to develop. What other ways are, when you see, think about, you kind of reference the story for an artist, when you think about like label strategy, how do you see certain labels really leveraging the platform? Because I obviously labels have some of the massive portfolios and rosters of artists. So at that point, yeah, I'm sure they're diving into the metrics on single artists, but on the flip side too, they're also looking at a lot more of these kind of macro trends and macro insights. Sure. I mean, this it's, I'll give two different examples. I mean, um, on, on the frontline side, you know, this relates into the trigger cities, which we mentioned briefly, and I guess we'll come back to, you know, the, in the past, you know, there is this traditional approach which record companies have. You break an artist in the home market, and then if the artist became super successful, you might be able to drum up some interest from your international affiliates, opcos, or licensees in other countries um, to release that artist as well. Because you had a blueprint. We broke this artist in this country. Here you go, guys. Do the same in your country. Today, it's complete, almost... It's almost the, entirely the reverse these days. You know, if you, um, in the first instance, you need to build a global audience. And it's sort of obvious. I mean, if we take the UK as an example, the UK used to have a fantastic track record of breaking artists globally. And if you go back to the 1980s, 50% of the global stars were British artists. Um, these, these days, it's much more difficult, though, because you know, the UK is a small country. We only have 4% of the online audience. And so if you're going to try and break an artist and establish them as a really good star, but you're only going to do that amongst 4% of the global audience, that's not really much of a statement. <laughs> you know, and, and in actual fact, it's really, really difficult to even break an artist in the in in one small market now without having had a fantastic push from a big audience in other markets as well. And so these days in general, what we see is artists, new artists emerge globally and then double down on, on individual countries. The strongest markets become their hero markets. But initially, whereas artists used to break in one country, it's the other way around. You need the numbers. You need to find fans at a global level um, to promote you. Because ultimately, you know, word of mouth was always the way that music was really promoted. Most record companies, you know, all we did basically was try and encourage fans to tell their friends to, um, about an artist. And that would get them to go into a record store and buy a CD. Today, it's the same. In a way, the job is easier. Um, because, you know, it's not just word of mouth, it's social networks. There's so many ways for fans to enthuse about the artists they really like these days. Um, but you have to do it on a global level. And so I think that that is one of the fundamental ways that we've seen data completely transform strategy in record companies. And then you look at the catalog side as well. Um, you know, catalog always used to, in a sense, a lot of labels used to say it keeps the lights on. Um, the sale, you know, that the old, um, old recording selling through in retailers. Um, today the catalog business is alive and well, but it's fundamentally changed. And, um, and a lot of the time, you know, uh, one of the interesting things we're working with a number of labels on 
is really using data to understand playlists, um, to understand audience segments, and to and to understand the type, the sound of the music, the mood of the music. These things, you know, in the past we sold albums, you know, which were built around a concept often created by the artist. Today, people don't listen to albums. We like to think they still do. And that's not, there's definitely still a market for albums, but consumption is based around playlists. People listen to playlists around contexts. And so understanding the context for those playlists, and, you know, there's a lot of data involved in that. Right, right. Um, so how do you, so you said kind of briefly, um, a lot of artists are choosing to get more popular globally and then kind of coming back to their home countries. How do you define, uh, you know, obviously the world is a huge place. How do you define which cities to go to next? <laughs> it's a, that is a, a really good question. I mean, we did, we did a bit of research last year, which we published called Trigger Cities, um, which was identifying in a sense the, the cities where artists emerged. Um, you know, in the old days, artists would always emerge in cities in their home country, um, often in their own city. These days, what we discovered was that, you know, new artists often, they're f the first place where they build an audience might be on the other side of the world. And a lot of that was down to, you know, their music, um, where their music really connected with the audiences. Um, the type, you know, the way they use their marketing, the way they use their socials. Um, you know, pop artists, particularly male pop artists, have always been likely to perform particularly well in Southeast Asia. You know, in the 1990s, Southeast Asia was boy band crazy, and it still is. Male artists, pop songs, clean lyrics work fantastically well in that market. Um, rock. You know, Latin, we always associate Latin America with reggaeton these days, but it's still a phenomenal um, rock market, an alternative music market. And so there's trends all the way around the world. You know, EDM is phenomenal in India and Mexico and some of Latin America. Eastern Europe, Eastern Europe tends to favor female singers and um, upbeat dance pop. You know, there are all these trends around the world. And and so and often you see a lot of artists who emerge are accidentally or deliberately capitalizing on these trends in different marketplaces, and they're using this they're using other channels to really communicate with audiences. That you know, it's one of the one of the things we always point out about the Trigger Cities concept is sort of like so much of this music industry is based in Western Europe and North America. And Western Europe and North America are markets which don't use social networks. We like to think we use social networks. We're all on social networks, but we don't really use them the same way as 80% of the world. You know, we don't really use them from a social point of view. Ac academics often talk about um, the Western, uh, North American and Western European use of social networks as being about status, not status as in wealth or anything like that um, but status as in what am I doing what are my friends doing what is happening you know it's very much a statement and we all make statements um, and there's very very little interaction um, beyond that 
know, good at, whereas the behavior, um, whereas um, use of social networks in other markets tends to be made based more around friendship. A good example is um, um, say I liked, say one of my friends liked an artist and posted a link to a playlist by that artist on Facebook. You know, I'm British. I'd probably look at it and I'd go, yeah, whatever. I wouldn't listen to it. You know, I don't have many friends and they've all got shit taste, to be honest. And, and I'd be really, really dismissive. That is the attitude I would generally have. Um, and and I send this to your friends. <laughs> sort of a counterintuitive, that's, but that sort of behavior is counterintuitive to a lot of people in this world. You know, if I had a friend, if say I was in, I don't know, um, Chile or I was in the Philippines and I had a friend who really liked a new artist and posted a link on Facebook with a playlist link. Um, you know, if I was in one of those countries and if I'd grown up in that culture, I would probably look at that post and I wouldn't judge it. Whether I knew the artist, whether I liked the artist, whether I disliked the artist or I'd never heard of them, my instant reaction would probably be to share that link with all my other friends as well. Not because I like the artist, but because I like my friend. And to show my, how much I like my friend and love my friend, I would promote their idols for them. And so it means that things often grow in other markets, um, particularly markets which embrace socials much more. Um, they grow much more quickly, which is, yeah. why, which is why in the trigger cities we see so many of the trigger cities are concentrated in Latin America, Southern Asia, and um, Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. So just to fully define the trigger cities, because I mean, I think this is a fascinating concept. And I mean, everybody's always trying to find the, the shortcut to breaking an artist and not saying this is it. But I do think there's definitely some merit in trying to find these places that may be a little bit intuitively off the beaten path where it may be less competitive and more likely to pick up traction. So when it comes to defining trigger cities, I mean, these are the, the cities where... They have a, a, a big density of users across streaming platforms that are likely, if you're able to pick up momentum in those cities, translate to momentum in other bigger international markets. Is that how you would define it? Basically, I mean, we, when we did the research, we we approached it from an ANR point of view. Um, you know, with um, I've, I I'd used or I'd sort of like worked um, with people in a lot of these markets previously from a marketing point of view. Um, but a couple of years ago, A&R people were saying, particularly A&R folks in America, were often saying that they were finding it more and more difficult to sign artists who would be internationally successful. They could find great art, great American artists who would be, could sign them, and they'd be do really well in the USA. But success abroad, they were finding much more challenging to actually um, uh, uh, to grow for these new artists they were signing. And so, you know, we suggested, right, okay, well, instead of looking for American artists in the US, why not look and see whether American, unsigned American artists are building audiences in these particular parts of the world? And if they are, then sign them. Doesn't matter if they're not building an audience in the USA. If they're building an audience in these particular places, they're probably gonna grow very, very quickly. 
you know, most American artists don't, you know, if they're unsigned, they've got no money behind them growing their streams in Chile or in um, the Philippines or Indonesia. You know, they're growing because of organic engagement. And so if an artist is building organic engagement in the most vital um, uh, um, markets, the most markets where things grow most virally, then um, with your investment as a label, imagine what you can achieve there. Yeah. No, I mean, it's it's powerful concept. I think it's super exciting. And I think appreciate you guys and kind of identifying it and popularizing it. I think for one of the artists we've been working with, we've been... Um, even too, even if you do have like some budget available, if you're a smaller independent artist, a lot of the trigger cities that you guys have identified, and we'll definitely like link to some of the articles from the Chartmetric blog that outline some of these specific trigger cities um, in the show notes. But we've been targeting a lot of those trigger cities in Latin America because there a lot of them are like lower GDP per capita markets. So if you're running ad campaigns, it's a, it's a lot cheaper to reach a thousand people. Um, so at scale, it makes it a lot more cost effective if you're trying to figure out what's the cheapest way to drive cost per stream. And you've got to remember that, I mean, these these cities and these countries have massive populations. You know, these, you know, most of the trigger cities in, um, in, the, in the countries we identified, you know, they're bigger than any city in the USA. The populations are huge. The population, everybody has mobile phones. Everybody streams music, you know, so, you know, these are not necessary, you know, in, in the past 20, in, in the past, in the days of CD, record companies ignored these markets because, yeah, the GDP was low. Retail prices of CDs were very, very high compared to cons- consumers' disposable income. So these markets were generally sort of ignored. Um, these days, these are the markets which are the future. And when you look at the population and population growth, India, where many of the trigger cities are, India in two years' time will be the world's most populous country. It will overtake China. Indonesia has almost the same population as the USA. Philippines has over twice the population of the UK. And, um, you know, the, and around about the same population as Japan, which is the world's second biggest market for music. So these are not, insignificant countries anymore these are not you know they're still often termed by record companies emerging markets they have fully emerged already they are dictating what we listen to in everywhere around the world right yeah um so we got a couple questions from our from our patrons um david and danny kind of asked a question kind of together and their question is, what is the most valuable metric to go after as an artist across all platforms at this point in time? And what are some KPIs, baseline KPIs, that you see on average to know if an artist is heading in the right direction? Whoa. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, guess, I guess that would depend on the artist, but, you know. Yeah. So um, there is no single metric which really matters because, in general, what we see is if – uh, if an artist is a, is really engaging an audience and growing and has fantastic potential, or if a track is really growing and engaging, it's rarely happening in one platform. You know, almost invariably, it is going to happen across a range of different platforms. DSPs, 
and social networks, you know, there has to be sort of multiple platforms in the mix. And so that means there's no single metric you can use. You know, often, you know, record companies in the past would, you know, when they were gauging success or gauging what artists to sign, they would look at just, they say, the number of Spotify followers, or they try to find out what the number of listens for a track is. And it's just, they'd end up signing an artist, and then often a year down the line realize that the artist they'd signed had been buying all their followers and buying all their plays. Um, so these days, you know, real growth happens in multiple different platforms. I suppose it's sort of a holy trinity of YouTube, Instagram, and Spotify. Those three services, you know, almost invariably, if artists who are growing and are likely to have real long-term potential are building audiences across all those three platforms, but other platforms is important as well. You know, TikTok becomes increasingly important. And artists do have a, you know, artists have a, a lot to learn about TikTok. Record companies do. Um, a chart metric, we created a metric, which, you know, we're, we're a machine learning company. We, we create indexes and metrics. So we created a number called CPP, which stands for cross-platform popularity, um, which basically uses metrics from lots of different services and social networks um, to compile an index um, which um, f for to describe how popular an artist is on a daily basis. And then we publish it as a rank. So, because, so then you can see every single artist in the world ranked from one to two and a half million. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, artists can then say, hey, I'm bigger than the Beatles today. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. No, I mean, that, that's a cool one. I think another metric too that, that jumps out in my experience using the platform is the Spotify popularity index. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like that obviously, I mean, that kind of consolidates a couple of those different factors, streams, follower growth across Spotify. Can you kind of define the, the metric and then, I mean, how to go about increasing it? Because I know you were alluding to, yeah, you want to build momentum on Spotify, but I mean, you could drive listeners, streams, followers, and I'm sure they're all good. But as you are looking to build up momentum on Spotify, I think obviously a lot of the, the intention there too is to, uh, or at least the theory, and this kind of goes across all social platforms in general, but if you're able to build up engagement on your own, then you're more likely to get additional distribution organically from the actual platform. And I think for Spotify, I mean, there's been a rumor I've heard where it's, if you get your Spotify popularity index over 55 on chart metric, um, the likelihood that when you release new music, and that it may get featured in the editorial algorithmic playlist is uh, it's just a lot higher. I mean, this could just be a urban myth, but uh, regardless, I do think there is some merit in that metric. So I'm curious how, how you define it and how you can improve it and the, the merit and value of it from your perspective. I think there's, you know, people like KPIs. You know, people like to have a number to aim for. Yeah. Um, whereas in actual fact, you know, increasingly what I would generally say is there's no absolute number which you have to aim for. 42. <laughs> what you have to aim for is consistent growth. You know, if, um, you know, this, you know, Spotify uses, Spotify's built on a social network architecture. Most streaming services are. 
and of course social networks, our social network. And in a sense, they use algorithms, popularity algorithms, to find things which are trending. And if something is trending, they push it out more. And if something is not trending, if people aren't interested in something or it's old and boring, then they push it out less. And, and, and so if you want to cook algorithms, if you want to get algorithms to work in your favor, you've got to grow. Not necessarily shoot up. Don't try and sort of buy yourself a thousand followers, a million followers on Instagram. Because algorithms are smarter than that. Algorithms will see, oh, that's out of trend. They'll never keep that up. Ignore it. You know, the, those it, anomalies like that get ignored. Slow, steady, sustained growth, day in, day out, week in, week out, is the most important thing to create. And that is a real challenge for record companies and artists. You know, when I... When I started working in record companies, it used to be a mantra, um, which the, label, the heads of record labels would do at sales conferences. At any sales conference at a major label, you could guarantee one of the label heads would bang their fist on the table and say, it's all about week one. You know, it's all about how, what your chart position is for your track or your album at the end of week one. You know, in other words, people would always want to spike through the roof. Today, it's almost completely the opposite. I would say it's all about week 51. It's all 151. Where you are after one week doesn't really matter. Where are you a year later? If you've consistently grown over time, you'll be doing a lot better than somebody who just went up and down. And so it's, it's slow, steady, sustained growth. That cooks algorithms. Algorithms um, which are looking for things which are trending get behind content like that and they push it out even more, which means things grow. Ultimately, things will grow exponentially. And yeah, so, I actually... All right, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, 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 go on. <laughs> I was going to say I worked for an artist named Goldlink for a few years and uh, we saw this firsthand for the first time and it kind of all like surprises one of his songs named Crew. We released it in December. Um, and then it didn't get to, to, to get into top 10 urban radio until the next August or something like that, <laughs> because it just like over time grew and we all were like, what, what's happening right now? You know? Um, and it was, it's obviously a special track. If you hear it, it's a special track, but I think that was the shift in the label and the, and the management company's mindset to be like, you know, it's kind of like what you're saying. It's not necessarily the first week. It's like week 51. And I think almost, it's funny you say that because it's 52 weeks in a year. And the song went platinum almost a year after it came out, which is like almost exactly what you just said. Yeah, it's, it's traditional marketing campaigns used to last two weeks or one week if the ship figures were bad. You know, so and these days, you know, that, that doesn't wash. You need to market 365. We often talk about 365 marketing. You know, you, um, if you're an artist or if you're a record company or a management company, Who's supporting artists, you've always got to grow, you know, because in a sense, another way to look at it is record companies are great at consumer acquisition, but they've never had to do consumer retention before. In the past, we only needed to acquire a consumer's attention. 
you get that attention so that a consumer went into a record store, handed over $15 and walked out with a CD. And at the point they handed over $15, the job was done. You have monetized the consumer. Um, today, you know, it's not enough to acquire consumers. You need to retain their attention all the time. If you stand any chance of achieving that same level of monetization, because you, they have to listen and they have to listen and listen again and listen again over an extended period of time. And ideally, if you stand any chance of really being successful, they've got to tell their friends as well. And they've got to tell their friends in turn. And so, you know, I think in the recording industry, one of the things that everybody is still grappling with is not the concept of consumer acquisition, it's consumer retention how you retain the engagement of consumers, because that is something which we've never had to really grapple with before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think it's cool too. I know some of the, like in Spotify, they have a metric too, if you're in like Spotify for artists, where you can see the percentage of streams that are coming from a listener's existing uh, library or playlists, which is great because if that number is high, then you know that you're actually retaining those audiences. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's important not to forget the power of user playlists as well. Mm -hmm. When we started Chartmetric, a lot of people were using Chartmetric to find the biggest playlist. Today, it's almost completely the opposite. You people are trying to find the smallest playlist, but they <laughs> want to find the, play, the small playlists which are influential. Mm -hmm. They want to identify playlists curated by, often by users, just kids. Yeah or something, you know, creating playlists which all of their friends listen to. Mm -hmm. and their friends share with their friends. And yeah. For sure. So you spoke about the Holy Trinity. I mean, YouTube, Facebook, uh, YouTube, Instagram, and Spotify. When it comes to like driving streams and trying to channel an artist's audience or paid media campaigns, marketing initiatives towards one specific DSP? I mean, do you feel it's optimal to drive to a singular platform like Spotify or should you split? And I'll, we'll speak from experience because obviously we're probably all familiar with the like multi-retail URLs where it'll have the link for Apple Music, Spotify, Deezer. Those pages can have like crazy amounts of drop-off. So I mean, in certain ad campaigns that I'm personally running with clients, like we're targeting people that are interested in similar artists, but also interested in Spotify and driving only to Spotify. I mean, do you feel it's better to really try and go all in on one platform or to disperse it across Spotify, Deezer, Apple Music? Think about the customer. Um, don't dictate what, the cust what service the customer has to use because, you know, consumers, um, you know, it's, if you're an artist or if you're a record label, you want as many consumers as possible to listen to your music. Why would you say, why would you only focus on one platform? Yeah, sure, there's a number, a couple of DSPs who have the vast majority of the marketplace. Um, but when you look at consumption globally, people are consuming music across multiple different platforms. And a presence on all of those platforms is really important. I don't think there's, you know, when I talk about the Holy Trinity of those three services, it's really from the point of view that, you know, when we see growth, in a, um, when we see consistent growth across those three platforms, it generally means that an artist is going to be successful. That doesn't mean that those are the only three platforms where the artist um, will be successful. 
In general, there are multiple others, but those three are pretty common to every single artist. It's rare to see artists who amongst the platforms which they're using, those three aren't featured. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. So, and you, you have to remember there's demographic differences between the platforms as well. Audiences in different age groups use different platforms. Audiences mm -hmm. in parts of the world use different platforms. In some parts yeah. of the world, you know, a service which we regard in, in Western markets as being about monetization, in other markets is purely about promotion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. It's very interesting. So I guess one of the last kind of um, tactical questions I have is on the, I mean, I guess this is interesting because I know you spent a lot of time thinking about data and analytics. I feel like DSP, if you look at how a lot of like direct to consumer, like e-commerce businesses are run, the ones that are often doing the best are, are running multiple ad campaigns and are able to experiment with so many different variables and if you look at a tool like Google Analytics, it can you can use like UTM tracking links. So you can literally see what sales are coming directly from what ads. And not just uh, on, on Spotify, it's like it becomes somewhat of a black box as soon as you actually like send them to Spotify. Like you're not necessarily sure who's becoming those retained listeners. Um, you're not sure if you're just driving to people to the profile, if they're actually like sticking around to listen to any music or if they're just like clicking the link and not doing anything. So you can optimize. I mean, maybe this is only in regards to like paid media, but you can optimize around how much traffic you're sending to the platform, but you never have any insight to, uh, you don't have any direct insight to what the engagement is after that traffic has been sent other than being able to kind of cross compare the analytics and Spotify's back end. Do you see that landscape changing? I know it's it's gotten very robust on Google Analytics, but right now it is not there on DSPs. I don't think it's going to change on DSPs for the fundamental reason that it would be if DSPs were to be sharing that sort of data with um, record labels, they would be breaking multiple laws around the world um, regarding data privacy. Um, you know, consumers pay to be a member of a DSP subscription service. They don't pay for a particular music. You know, essentially, it's a, it's a club membership. They're paying to be a member of Spotify. They're paying to be a member of Apple Music. And so, therefore, even if they listen to music by a specific artist as part of that subscription, you know, that does not imply that the consumer gives any consent to the artist, the record company, the publisher having access to that data. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, I don't think it will change. Um, you know, I think the volumes of data involved will be titanic. Um, so it would present a real challenge anyway for record labels and artists really to grasp this. Um, but fundamentally, yeah, it's, it's really, you know, consumer, you know, music, the way to think about it is in a sense, music is a benefit consumers get from being a member of a subscription service. Mm -hmm. so, so, yeah, it's, it's a legal issue. And with GDPR, an, inc an in increased focus all the time on privacy and data confidentiality, I don't envisage that will ever change. And, you know, data also, 
holding consumer data, owning consumer data or knowledge of the consumer is incredibly important um, in a D2C business model, mm-hmm. um, you know, for obvious reasons. But also D2C business models as well, the level of monetization you make from a transaction tends to be very, very high as well anyway. Right. Um, whereas the level of monetization from subscription services is obviously you know, incredibly small in comparison. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the, you know, fundamentally there's an obsession with um, everybody obsessed with knowing their own consumer's data and or knowing what your own streams are. I mean, this is one of the things that I think more than anything which inspired me to sort of really get into analytics after I left record companies was that in record companies, you look, they, record companies have a lot of data. They have all of the information about their streams coming in from all of their tracks. And I remember one day when I, I started work at a, um, I won't say which major label, um, but I started work at a major label about eight years ago. And somebody said, do you want to see the marketing reports? And I said, hell yeah, bring them in. And, and so a few minutes later, they came back in with a stack load of paper and put it down on my desk. And I was just like, paper, hmm, interesting. And <laughs> started, started flicking through it. And it was sales reports, streaming reports, download reports on all the tracks that the label owned. There wasn't anything about the rest of the market in there. It was just their own recordings, which were in the report. As I said, have you got the, got the marketing reports? Um, putting the sales report to the side. And they said, no, you've got it in front of you. I said, no, that's a sales report. I want to see, you said you had the market reports. I want to know about the market. The, you know, knowing what you've done yesterday doesn't tell you anything about the marketplace because, you know, you don't know whether, you know, say your sale, your streams grew 10% last, um, last month. You know, you might think, well, hey, 10% growth in one month, fantastic. You might not know that the rest of the market actually grew 30% that month. Therefore, you actually shrank. So unless you know about the market, knowing your own data is pointless. Yeah, yeah, powerful. I mean, and I think, too, it seems like just as we think about the next generation of labels, both smaller emerging independents all the way up through the major labels. I mean, having that kind of um, the, the search for market understanding and uh, as kind of in the, the, the true blood and culture of all of what they do and test will be critical. So I guess that kind of leads me to my last question, which is, I know you started a kind of a label um, LSO Live, and you're one of the first yeah. kind of companies to make artists equal shareholders, get entire catalog on streaming platforms. I mean, as we look now to this kind of like next wave of labels, um, what do you feel are some of the, the biggest evolutions in the music industry that the, the most forward thinking labels will deeply embed in their culture and way of thinking? Blimey. (laughs) (laughs) I knew the answer. (laughs) I think, you know, I think the the biggest challenge we all face and, you know, the, the, the most important thing for any record label to focus on and develop in the future or for any new label who's starting off is this concept of 
audience retention. Um, we're, we're so obsessed in the industry with acquiring audiences that we forget about retention. You know, and in the old days, again, you didn't need to bother about retention. In the days of CDs, I mean, when I was a kid growing up, I had, um, you know, 30 pounds, so about $35 a year to spend on music. You know, so I could only buy two or three albums a year. So I was only a fan of three artists at one time. And so if those artists went away to a Caribbean island with a mountain or whatever um, to record a new album and then came back and then took 18 months to come back, I would be outside the record store door because I was only a fan of three artists because I didn't have more money. Um, these days, people can listen to anything. You know, people are listening to multiple different artists. We don't, we don't have fans in the same way that we used to have. And so... And I think we, I mean, if, if I ran a record company, I might ban the word fan, um, you know, because fan is, you know, ultimately fan is short for fanatic. And we, we you know, it's sort of like, that's a pretty strong word. Um, and, you know, fans don't really exist in the same way. Or if you do create, if you do turn somebody into a fan, then, well, you've done your job really well. But, you know, that's, that I think is just too uh, too difficult a goal these days. You know, you're never going to create enough fanatics about a single artist. So you, we all have to focus much more on yes, consumer acquisition, but also consumer retention because that retention, um, that element of retention dictates everything else we do. How, what our release cycle should be, what our release strategy should be, how we market, you know, whether we sort of like focus on one mark, one country, or try and reach globally. All of these things are really dictated by that. And essentially, it's because the economics of the industry are so very different these days. Right. It's funny that you bring up the distinction between fan and, you know, what you're trying to get. Because over the past couple of years, I feel like I've just heard listeners more often than than fans or consumers because fan is kind of like an aggressive word. So then when you hear somebody who's buying your merch coming to your shows and listening to your music, that's when you got like a real fan because they're spending like yeah. hundreds of dollars a year on, on your artist as a brand and as an, and as a musician. Everybody so. wants fans. And yeah, yeah <laughs> it's not that fans are extinct or anything. You can still get fans, but it takes time. Right. Ever going to get there, you need to do so much more in the interim. Right, right. Well, um, I think that's all we got for today. I just, just want to thank you for coming out. I think uh, data analytics and the way the chart metric is handling the industry and, and providing these gifts to, to, to artists and labels and managers is, is really great. And I'm excited to see how um, the consumption of data and how people use these insights to further their artist careers in the future, for sure, especially now, because that's kind of all we have, you know? People can't people can't go to shows. We can't get that. We can't get the you know the ticket, the ticket uh, sales back or anything like that. So it it'll change and get better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. Thank you so much for having me on, guys. I mean, really, really appreciate it, and sort of like really interesting conversation. Of course, awesome. man. it's been an absolute pleasure. 
Wow. Well, that was a great episode. What did you think, man? Yeah, I thought it was awesome. I thought it was awesome. I really liked how he, uh, I mean, I, I think the, the most valuable takeaway for me there, too, I mean, and this is, I don't think, nothing new per se, but I think it's something that often gets overlooked, but was what he said in regards to the fact that the most important thing to keep in mind is, um, and one of the most important factors across all these different algorithms are consistent month over month growth. And I, I think across platforms, maybe it is that holy trinity he referenced, Instagram, Spotify, and YouTube. But I think if you're, every single month you're outperforming the previous month, you're gonna be in a great, a great place. Yeah. Um, one of my favorites was that he said there's no one metric to focus on. I think a lot of people are like, should I get, you know, like I mentioned in the intro, should I get a lot of followers on this channel or should I get a lot of followers on that channel? And so there's not ever going to be one metric that you can focus on that'll tell you the entire story. It's kind of bringing all that data together, which leads me to my next point, which I thought was really cool is I, at one point I mentioned leveraging the data and he kind of paused me and was like, no, it's not, it's not leveraging the data. It's leveraging the insights from the data because obviously that we have a lot of data, but it's more so what does this data tell us? That's the most important thing. Um, so I thought that that was awesome. And that's a completely different step, but you know, what he was applying, that's a completely different step is taking this data and actually making use of it in a proper way. Um, I just want to thank everybody who's left a review so far for the Music Business Podcast. People do read those reviews. I read those reviews. I appreciate every single one of them. Um, it also helps, you know, people discover the podcast when they look and see you guys' words. We've been completely humbled by it. Sam and I obviously just started this thing, just him and I, um, as a hobby. And you guys have really made it something special to the point where we now have a Patreon that you guys can subscribe to. So if you want to talk to Sam and I, I post an article every day about news in the music industry. We listen to people's stories. We help them with their own careers. We're really getting invested into our Patreon community. So if you'd like to subscribe to that, please do. Please leave a review and then I'll shout you out. <laughs> Let's get it. We love y'all. Peace.